I'm Daniel. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Robert, and my pronouns are also he and him. And And this this is Grizzly Kiki. Kiki. Today's episode is brought to you by Warby Parker, an eye care brand that offers chic and modern eyewear at a revolutionary price. Simply put, your glasses shouldn't cost as much as a meet and greet with James Charles. Warby Parker's prescription glasses start at $95, and they offer great customer service. I should know. And they do sunglasses, too. Buying glasses should be easy and risk-free, girl. Warby Parker's home try-on program lets you fall in love with your glasses in the comfort of your own home. Who doesn't love that? (laughs) Choose up to five frames from hundreds of stylish options and have them shipped directly to you for free. That way you can try on all the frames and pick your favorite. And for every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to someone in need. We don't need people seeing things blurry. And Daniel wears Warby Parker and now he can actually see me. And... I'm now considering a divorce. Hey! To get started, head over to warbyporkertrial.com slash kiki. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Warby Porker? That's a very different website. I was projecting. Very different. I mean, I project in all directions. Give them them that link one more time. Oh, sorry. To get started, head over to warbyparkertrial.com slash kiki. Again, that's warbyparkertrial.com slash kiki. Warby Parker, modern eyewear made simple. Don't Google Warby Porker. You'll regret it. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I start my new job today. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm very excited. It's very exciting. Mm -hmm. I'm Mm -hmm. excited to hear all about it. I can't wait to tell you later. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard doing that when like we record these, you know, like ahead of time. (laughs) I mean, it's fine. Because my first day at work could be horrendous. No, it won't be. No, I know it won't be. I know it won't be. No, I know it won't be. Um, I'm actually really excited for you. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that. Uh, I think that it's rare that as queer people, we get to go and work in a safe space. Mm-hmm. Like occasionally we get to um, like kick back and entertain ourselves in a safe space, but rarely <laughs> do we ever get to do what we like, do what we love and do something that we're good at in a space where we're safe. Yeah. So I'm excited for you. And I hope our listeners are excited too. <laughs> Tweet a little briefcase emoji if you. Oh are. my God. <laughs> A little briefcase emoji. I don't know what el- what else. I, w- is like I a will work never signifier. a purse, uh, a cape, a little capelet emoji. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take a cape. Not a, I would never carry a briefcase. Ooh, or maybe like a good a good gif or something. I love peanut butter. Okay. <laughs> what um what have you been up to? Um, a whole lot of nothing. I've had a few days off, and I've been going um a little stir crazy, but also I've just been like cleaning things that i didn't know needed cleaning like what like they're well the refrigerator always needs cleaning like but your ass that n- no i'm not even going there with that one <laughs> um no just mundane things like it cleaning just, the refrigerator it, it just seemed obvious i'm not going there cleaning the stove um all those like domestic things that i have been missing out on because i was like super super busy all the time right so right yeah so much fun nice. right watching you know shows on netflix about people who go to watching old murder sites creeperson go hang out with a bunch of vampires yeah on netflix right yeah like you know dark dark tourist i think it's called dark tourism a dark tourism um which is hosted by the the same guy who created the tickled documentary right. creepy anyway, creeperson I yeah his name earlier oh i didn't know that was his name yeah. um but yeah that that's kind of what you do when you have a few days off that's right. you know that's it yeah but it's not- a, ni- a nice little break between mm-hmm. Uh, between jobs yeah a whole lot of nothing but you know um i okay so i had a conversation 
so something happened that bothered me and uh, my therapist and I talked about it and we basically figured out that um, that it was indicative of like a little bit of everything that's kind of going on in my life. But one of the things that it was indicative of is that I want to start taking risks with my clothing choices. And so I have been window shopping a lot on Fashion Nova and, um, and another website I found called, uh, oh my God, what was it? It was Bo- Boohoo Man. Boohoo Man. I bet you Tony Soto owns that website. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, go find You him. should be watching the Boogie yeah. review. It is absolutely uh, essential. Uh, what is it? What do they call that? Essential reading. Essential watching. Well, essential reading, but uh, oh, it's an essential companion piece mm-hmm. to Dragula. Yes. Um, so be sure yeah. to follow the Tony Soto show on Instagram and watch the Boohoo review. It's like the unauthorized biography. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I have been shopping. So there is a great website called Chubster and on Chubster, they basically have a listing of different tops and, uh, jeans and you just like all kinds of individual pieces, whether they be clothing, shoes, accessories, uh, that are marketed toward plus size men. And, um, and then they send you to the corresponding website, whether it's Boohoo Man or ASOS. Um, I don't think that they have, I don't think that they like populate stuff from Fashion Nova. I saw some stuff from Levi's today when I was just like mm-hmm. trying to find something to do on my commute home. Yeah. Um, and so I've been sort of taking risks. So there is a sequined bubble jacket. <gasps> oh, it's a thing of beauty. There I told is, you you need to buy that. There's a sequined bubble jacket. I have it bookmarked on my phone because I don't know if the world is ready. I don't think I'm ready, but I also don't know if the world is ready. We'll and have so, to clear out the closet. It needs its own I almost feel space. like I should just buy it and then see what happens. I just don't think I'm that person. I think you totally are the person to sparkle in the winter. But every day? Why shouldn't you sparkle every day? <gasps> That's going to be Whoa, my t-shirt. that's a t-shirt. Yeah, trademark TM. <laughs> All that stuff. Why shouldn't you sparkle every day? I mean, Me. I'm... Uh, but a, a sequined bubble jacket is like a lot, I feel Listen, like. Listen, I know that I'm the type of person who's always like, just because they make it doesn't mean you should wear it about a lot of things that are out there. Uh-huh. But that is so extra. It's so camp. And it's so like this super masculine thing that's like covered in sequins. Yeah. It's, you need to like buy it so we can just look at it. Okay. And you know, cause like I want to see this thing. All right. Mm-hmm. I just, I would love to hear from the listeners and see what they think of a sequined bubble jacket. It could be your signature. You just go around like no matter what, you always have sequined outerwear. Hmm. Like a sequin denim jacket, a sequin overcoat, you know. You know what? I I was thinking about it today and I was like, Johnny Valor was like, what was, what were the the four F's? (gasps) Oh my God. It was. How could I forget them? It was. Something, something faggotry and something else. Feathers. So I'm just like, this is the perfect. Mm -hmm. I have been. uh, Sequins. I have been wanting. Um, I've been re- wanting a, a new bubble jacket for like two years now because I have one that I bought. I spent a lot of money of, on it and then I gained a whole bunch of weight and it doesn't fit anymore. But I'm hanging on because it was really expensive and it is that perfect like sheen, that perfect like garbage bag sheen that a bubble jacket, like rarely does a bubble jacket get that sheen. Uh, only if they're like four or $500. I, well, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't spend that much on it, but I, you know, I, I came close. I had mm-hmm. a couple of coupons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, um, I met you in that bubble jacket, if I'm not mistaken. You did. Yeah. yeah you were it on our first, on, I mean, most of our first dates, but yes. Oh, right. Cause it was snowing mm-hmm. on our first date. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been wanting a new bubble jacket. I love the idea of a sequined bubble jacket. I sent a text to Pissy and David and asked them, can I pull this off? And Pissy gave a resounding fuck yeah. And I don't know if I'm ready. I need to like, I need to work on it. So, um, what I was, what I was getting at is that my therapist and I were talking about, uh, how I want to take more risks with my clothing because I want to be visible and I want to not be scared to be seen essentially. And so this is me, uh, experimenting with that. And I hope that it works out. I mean, I, I bought a, um, like a motorcycle jacket, like it's purchased. I got tracking information oh, I didn't today. Know about this. Oh yeah. Oh, oh which yeah. one? 
I showed it the to quilted you. one, the red and the it's red and not, black quilted one. No, it's not quilted. Oh. It's not quilted. It's like a regular. It's almost like a regular like plain Jane motorcycle. Because the best one you got was jacket. that guest motorcycle jacket that you bought when we were in San Francisco all those years ago. That was a cute jacket. I bought that in Florida at an outlet store. I'm pretty sure when but you bought anyway. it in Florida all those years ago. <laughs> yeah, I still have that jacket. I think, but the zipper broke. I think I think we anyway. Or the the zipper pull yeah. broke, and so I was using it with a uh, paper clip with a paper clip for a mm-hmm. really long time, and it just well, got to be too much. Now that I know how to replace all parts of a zipper, we may be able to fix it. Oh I'm so excited for all these projects that yeah. we're gonna we're gonna do. Right. Um. So I need to go buy a sequin jacket. And um, in the meantime, we did this incredible interview. We have this had this amazing conversation with Simon Doonan. Simon Doonan is known for being the creative ambassador at large at Barney's. He's also a judge on Making It, which is a craft competition show. Um, but uh, we got to talk to him about Drag, The Complete Story, which is a book that he has been working on for a very long time. It was released today. It is an incredible encyclopedia of drag knowledge. Um, and um, we're just, we're really excited to share this conversation that we had with him. So without further ado, here's our interview with Simon Doonan. Enchanté. Lovely to meet you. Ah, it's lovely to meet you too. Um, thank you so much for doing this with us. We're very excited. Oh, thanks for having me. So why don't we start by asking you what your pronouns are, Simon? Oh, um, I honestly never thought about it. I mean, I frequently get mistaken for a woman. Um, and I, I always have done. Like, I'm always called madam at the airport or, or in supermarkets. And on the phone, I always get madam because I sort of sound, I think, a bit sort of actressy. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I'm 67 years old. So this new, the new sensitivities around gender and stuff is very, it's a fascinating new development, but it's something that I kind of missed out on. So right. I've, I think I've always been, without realizing it, kind of fluidy, mm-hmm. um, you know, about about feeling gender. I mean, I definitely feel like a boy, but sometimes I feel pretty girly. Mm-hmm. Does that ever come out in your uh, in the way you express yourself in your clothes? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Um, I mean, I have a long history of wearing outrageous clothes and I was always drawn to androgyny. I mean, when the, the hippie era, cause I'm, you know, I was a teenager in the sixties, um, was quite androgynous when you think about it. And then bam, glam rock. That mm. was my big era where I got, you know, I was wearing satin and earrings and, um, you know, the the feminine fabrics that were associated with girls. Now there was this unisex sensibility that you saw with David Bowie and glam rock. Then I dived right into that. Mm-hmm. And then um in the new romantic era, you know, I was very into that foppish look of dressing like a pirate. And I used to go out regularly dressed in full pirate drag, um, but in a sort of foppish 18th century, very feminine version of pirate. Mm-hmm. And I'm in that video, you know, Betty Davis eyes, that yep, video. Yes. I'm one of the gyrating new romantics, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's the movement that spawned Boy George and Steve Strange and Spandau Ballet. And it was, it was truly androgynous and, very fluid pete um you know you spin me round pete mm-hmm. burns pete burns yeah um so yeah i've always been i've always been part of a sort of marginal world where these things were completely normal you know mm-hmm. i knew a guy who used to go around dressed as marilyn monroe squirting people with peroxide in the glam rock <laughs> era because he thought everyone should go blonde and become marilyn i think you know things were very outrageous <laughs> back then because Gay people were more marginalized and were actively discriminated against. So it forced out more outrageous behavior, you know, and and that was sort of my that's been a through line in my life. Mm-hmm. So is is the this Marilyn person that you talked about, is that the 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 person that uh, where the character from Taboo is based on? Um, I doubt it because um, that person, the Marilyn that, no, no, 
they're two different Marilyns. Okay. Boy Marilyn was the sort of magnificent pop star um, who was uh, associated with Boy George and right. who had a couple of hits and was very beautiful and um, very interesting. Is still around, as far as I'm aware. And uh, the Marilyn I'm referring to was probably 10 years earlier and um, was a, a glam rock fashion designer. Wow. The um the other Marilyn, he didn't call himself Marilyn. I can't remember what his name was. Mm-hmm. Um, but the person I was referring to originally was just a crazy fashion designer who was obsessed with Marilyn. But it's interesting you make that connection because the the second Marilyn, boy Marilyn, actually you know received quite a lot of recognition and and was outrageous and fun. We lived near each other actually in Los Angeles. Really, and I knew him, and um, he he's you know a fantastic spirit from that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, the the song that he does in the musical is called Genocide Peroxide, and I was wondering if there was a connection. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I I didn't make that connection, but um, anyway, no, Boy Marilyn, great, outrageous. Well, and it's interesting that you talk about you know gender also in in terms of of also gender expression and how you know how you would dress in in the seventies specifically uh, when you were talking about the new romantic era and uh, what you you reference in the book as pirate drag, which is something that I had never um, I'd never thought of necessarily. You never as, put it together, but I, as soon as it was in the book, thought, you were like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah pirate drag, lots of <laughs> lace and and satin uh-huh. and you know, floofy hair and, and all sorts of things like that. And I thought it was very interesting to to put that that particular um, descriptor on it because it just it just sums it all up very succinctly, I think. Um, well, and the people who adopted that style, me, um, you know, people like Philip Salon, all these English people. It was sort of early 80s, mm-hmm. very early 80s. Um, we got our clothes from Vivian Westwood. She opened this store on the King's Road and it was like an old pirate ship with a clock that was whizzing backwards and it had a floor that was slanted and mm-hmm. everyone in there was dressed in pirate drag. And it, Bow Wow Wow, remember Bow Wow Wow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The group Bow Wow Wow. Yep. Um, they all wore all that stuff and it was very androgynous. Boys could wear, girls could wear it. You wore lipstick or eyeshadow or not. You know, it was very fluid. It's fascinating. And we should talk about the book. That yes. We're and, and all of these things that you're <laughs> referencing, um, in particular, the, the, the Vivian Westwood store that did look like a ship, which I, I, um, have seen lots of photos of, and I think they even recreated a portion of it, um, in the Mets uh, punk exhibition a few years ago, which is fascinating. Um, you talk about this in your in your new book, Drag the Complete Story, um, which is has, was just released yesterday, actually. Um, and it, it really is a an amazing, dense, but very uh, accessible exploration of essentially the complete history of drag. Mm-hmm. Um can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind the book and how you approached the project? Um, well, I was, I just finished a book on soccer players and for a publisher in London called Lawrence King. And I love worship soccer players. I grew up in England. So the idea of these working class boys who became these super flamboyant, dressed up popinjays and would buy Lamborghinis and just really turn on the flash. I've always been fascinated by that. So I wrote a whole book about it, about their cars, their clothes, the history of that. And and the publisher said to me, you know, we've done some research and there is currently no history of drag, a, a historical overview. There are books which touch on different aspects of drag, drag in theater, drag here, drag there. But an encyclopedic, quote unquote, history of drag does not exist. And all the book publishers, all, all the bookstores are saying they could sell it if they had it. Are you interested in doing it? And I said, yeah, that sounds right up my boulevard. I mean, out of the soccer locker room into the, you know, the illusions lounge, you know, <laughs> so why not? And, um, you know, I, people have said to me, oh, what qualifies you to write this book? I mean, I love history. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a lot. Uh, I've been around drag all my life. I have pictures of me when I was 10 years old taken by my mother and I'm in drag in the backyard. 
Um, but I don't think that would be a necessary qualification. But I love history. I love culture. So nothing specifically qualifies me to write this book um, other than having an interest in history. And I think I'm not an academic. And that, in this instance, is an advantage because mm-hmm. um, I wanted it to be a bouncy, fun book, which got people excited about history because I find history incredibly exciting and incredibly fun. And if you know how ghastly the world was in the 16th and 17th century, you you, don't, you relax a bit about things today. You know, mm-hmm. I think history can be enormously reassuring um, because you start to put things in context today. So, um, yeah, I think history is a riot and I wanted to communicate that to people. So, um yeah, I jumped on it. It took me about three years. Um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the process of writing a book, but the first thing you have to do is write a proposal mm-hmm. and a framework, and you have to write sample chapters, and then you send them in, and then they send them back with horrible comments all over <laughs> them, and you have to redo it about 8,000 times. So there's a process by which, you know, it takes a while to get going. But overall, I would say it took just over three years to do this book. And um mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. I mean, what's not to enjoy? My God, such a brilliant, hilarious topic. It's the the book itself is so it's comprehensive. It is a, it is the it's a beautiful textbook, if I can say that, <laughs> because I learned so much from reading it, and uh, it's it's fascinating. It's just it's fascinating to have everything together with all of these gorgeous photos. And mm-hmm. I think it's such an important thing that you've put together and will hopefully be taught in universities. Um, but uh, we were we were interested. So in the book, you talk about your first exposure to drag. And we were wondering if uh, you can share the story and the impact that your first experience with drag had on you. Well, basically, as a kid growing up in England after the war, you, you, I was drowning in drag. You know, uh, every, British comedy at the time was very drag infused. I was familiar with it on TV, à la distance, as the French say. Um, and then when I went to university in Manchester, I started going to the gay bars. And with, this is the early 70s, like 1970. And um, there was a bar called the Rembrandt, and I went in, and it was a wonderful, squalid kind of pub, and they had drag drag queens. And on this particular night, this big, burly drag queen got up on the stage and took a big mouthful from this bottle of disgusting-looking liquid, and she threw her head back and blew a huge cloud of what turned out to be gasoline into the air and struck a match. And she was a fire-eating super tacky drag queen who was ferociously terrifying and like talk about fierce um like she she didn't smile once she just stared at the audience and kind of demanded some kind of psychological submission and when i remember that moment i realized that that's a big part of drag it's about um glamour drag in particular it's about submission it's about intimidation it's about power grabbing power and then i make in the book this sort of analogy with medusa mm-hmm. you know you can't really look into the face of this tyrannical terrifying drag queen and you see this transition on rupaul's drag race so clearly mm-hmm. the boys come into the room in the morning and they're just like very young looking very fresh faced mostly and uh, <laughs> they then by the by the time they're ready to go on stage they become these sort of terrifying castrating medusas mm-hmm. you know with these oversized wigs and ramparts of false eyelashes and i i fast i was fascinated by that transition um from you know i'm i'm a boy i'm the kind of boy that's get called named on the street but then just come back in four hours and I'll cut your nuts off, you know, like that. <laughs> exactly. And I was fascinated by that power grab. And, and you see similar power grabs, especially in butch drag. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big motivation Absolutely. for women to wear um, men's clothes. You know, throughout history, they did it to survive. They did it to get a job. They did it to not be raped and pillaged in the Middle Ages. Like, um, you know, so drag is um, 
can be enormously useful and it's uh, and it's about survival mm-hmm. yeah it it's funny that you mentioned the um the Medusa legend, because that was one of the things that struck both of us um, as we were knee deep in your book. <laughs> I will, I will always um, remember that I read that on a plane because it was so brilliant that I just, I like, I will be connected yeah. to that forever. I was somewhere on Seventy Second Street because I actually printed the book out and read it cover to cover, so it was quite interesting <laughs> uh, taking chapters with me um, on the six train um every morning and just having people look at me because of all the photos that they saw on the back page um but do you feel <laughs> and and you're right what that, that that is something quite striking i think not just about glam drag but drag in general where you you again it, it's it's a theme that you touch upon throughout the book where it's it it is um a visual assault as you call it and and a confrontation and what we were wondering is do you feel that the um this idea of of the the Medusa figure being at once both something that that's quite uh, dangerous and repulsive, but also attractive. Do you think that that is something that is at the very core of drag? Um, definitely. I think you know when you think about the enduring popularity of drag, how compelling drag has been and remains and is becoming more so. Um, there's got to be some deep psychological shit underpinning it. You know what I mean? And, and I think, um, drag is enormously therapeutic. People have all these psychological ambivalence about female nature, about maternal control, about, um, sex. And so drag, I, I think in its various forms is therapeutic in many, many different ways. Um, you know, it, it sort of diffuses our darkest kind of insecurities and concerns about, um, gender and about, um, sex and, uh, and about, you know, nature, human nature. Oh, hi, it's me, Robert. And I have a question. Do you shop on Amazon? If so, you can be a supporter of our show. Just go to grizzlykiki.com and click the Amazon button in our menu. Anytime you shop on Amazon using our link, we'll get a small commission on everything you buy. And it's free. There's no cost to you as the money comes out of Amazon's pocket, not yours. So bookmark it, use it, and every time you buy from Amazon, you'll be helping us keep the key key going. You also, you, you have, you do a good job of explaining the different, you know, that there are different types of drag and you go into detail for certain ones. Um, we were wondering which, which style of drag is the one that inspires you the most? Um, well, uh, I guess my goal with the book was I didn't want to have a chronological, the obvious thing to do with a history book is to do something chronological. Right. But I don't think that would work because you have all this ancient Rome, ancient Greece, and that's a funny way to kick off a book for younger people who might not have waded into that territory. And then, so I divided it up thematically, pop star drag, black drag, radical drag, art drag, um, and divided it up that way and just arranged the chapters into a, an order that made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um so uh, I've forgotten what your question was. <laughs> Which um, we were wondering if there was a particular style of drag that inspires you. Um, well, I have to say, when I've done drag, I've been unbelievably sloppy, hasty. I don't have any commitment. Michelle Visage would just, you know, beat me senseless. <laughs> I've always been a, a, a lazy, a lazy drag queen when I've done drag. So I am profoundly. Um, touched and moved and obsessed by the new meticulousness which you see in drag because I would be utterly incapable of it where you know Violet Chachki, Kimchi, um, Ryan Burke these people are doing on their faces on their bodies what I couldn't do on a flat piece of paper and I'm quite mm-hmm. good at drawing you know like it's their level of design and meticulousness is extraordinary and it makes sense to me that they all love Thierry Mugler because he was had that same obsessive sense of meticulousness. So I'm truly inspired by that, I guess, largely because I would be incapable of it. Um, and it's kind of one of the things that's propelling drag forward today is 
you know, there's many things propelling drag forward. There's the gender revolution. There's the um, politicizing of drag, the Trump bump. But there's this meticulousness, which is truly staggering. I mean, mm-hmm. you guys probably look at photos all the time of uh, kimchi and these guys, what they do on their faces. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. show them to somebody who never looks at that stuff and it will knock their socks off mm-hmm. because and you'll get an objective look at you know how extraordinary that artistry is and you know and then it's made drag into a language which people can apply in different contexts so Mm -hmm. you it pops up in fashion you know john galliano used the language of drag the artifice of drag in different contexts Mm -hmm. you know uh drag is a language um that can be adopted by anybody and you see that now with um, cisgendered females who identify as drag queens, someone like Suzanne Barch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the language of drag is in her soul, you know, mm-hmm. and she contributes to it um, so magnificently. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, in, in what you were talking about, uh, your own forays into drag, um, compared to, you know, somebody like, like Kimchi, for example, who does these, as, as I call them, kind of acrobatics with makeup, because they really are um, feats, you know, in and of themselves. And then, you know, they wipe away at the end of the evening. You know, it's just this art form that just melts away when you're done with it. But um, one of the quotes that you included in, um, in chapter eight, of the book um was andy warhol said if everybody is not a beauty if everybody is not a beauty then nobody is um struck a chord with me because your book is is terribly um democratizing i think or it, it it's very equalizing because every form of drag that you discuss in the book is is placed on equal footing. So there, it, it, it's not as if um, you know the drag that somebody like Kimchi, for example, does is more valid than the cockettes than the cockettes, right. or you know than I don't know why, but there's a New York queen whose name is Busted, and that's essentially what she does. <laughs> she looks busted, and and I think it it it, it is very interesting because I feel like that's a, quite a refreshing perspective that you. Uh, put forth in the book, which has so much research um, put into it, because as you've probably noticed on social media, there is this constant um, uh, kind of barrage uh, and uh, from it's gatekeeping. It's gatekeeping, and you, in in a way, with this book um, and those who you know will hopefully be lucky enough to read it <laughs> is that you kind of eliminate that concept w- was that something that you actively sought out to do by by putting everybody on the same footing absolutely and i think that quote from andy warhol if everybody's not a beauty then nobody is that's always meant a tremendous amount to me and i've always treasured that quote and um i think you know he looked at someone like jackie curtis who was just a rough and ready busted drag queen who was gender fluid, actually. She went back and forth between boy and drag queen. Um, and he saw beauty in her. And, you know, it, that generation of artists, Andy Warhol, Diane Arbus, um, they're very inspirational to me. Um, John Waters, I would throw in there. You know, he saw beauty in Edith Massey, mm-hmm. um, elevating people. Um, who would otherwise be, you know, put on the scrap heap because they don't look like Sybil Shepherds, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, they, uh, I, I love that idea. And that's very much, um, part of how I approach fashion, actually, and style. Like, uh, I once auditioned for Queer Eye years ago. And really? they showed me, they showed me pictures of, guys who they thought needed makeovers and i remember they had a picture of this overweight guy in a metallica t-shirt with a mullet and i said he looks fabulous what do you why you want to mess with him because (laughs) to me um i think people should look like themselves and you know another great quote um that i don't think i put in the book but jenny livingstone when she was making paris is burning you know filming it mm-hmm. she's the documentarian who made who filmed that movie she said she was most struck by the fact that she entered a world where people were really good at being themselves 
And to me, I thought that's such a poignant, beautiful quote because you see it in the movie. You think Peppa La Beja isn't being herself. Mm -hmm. And I think um, social media now does make people overly self-critical. It makes them then critical of others. I don't like that. I don't participate in that. I wrote a column for 10 years for the New York Observer, and they would say to me, people would write in, don't you hate blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, I don't hate anything. As long as people are having fun and uh, grooving with their look, like I do think that social media makes people nitpicky, negative. And I don't have that impulse because my books that I've written in the past have always been about setting people free of that self-critical impulse. Like, you know, um, buy a stripper wig and wear a leopard jumpsuit. You know, who cares? Mm -hmm. Like, have fun. Don't be self-critical. And I think that's from growing up at a time when it was illegal to be gay you know people gay people were really harassed mm -hmm. and um you did feel very marginal but you celebrated that and you celebrated the freakiness and punk rock punk rock wasn't very drag except you know i did have an outfit with a skirt built into it that vivian westwood made that was actually in that punk exhibit at the met at the Met, my punk outfit was the first thing you saw when you walked in. It had a detachable oh, wow. skirt, but it wasn't a very, it wasn't a very femmy kind of movement. But the girls who were in the punk rock movement, Susie Sue, Ari Up from the Slits, you know, um, Polystyrene, the singer of X-Ray Specs, these girls didn't take shit from anybody and they didn't adhere to, um, the sort of, uh, um, Vogue cover beauty standards. They did their own thing and they clearly felt very comfortable at, with themselves. And I've always thought that was so important. And I'm actually, when I'm around people who are very self-critical and very insecure about their appearance and constantly needing reassurance, it makes me very unhappy. You know, mm -hmm. it makes, I have to say, I say, Oh God, give yourself a break. No one's keeping score. Mm -hmm. you know, it should be about style and drag or about self-expression. And I don't want to sound like some weirdo missionary, but I do think that is such an important thing. And especially now as people are battling the critical onslaught of social media, that's such a good thing to remember. Mm -hmm. Self-expression. So if you had to give advice to someone who was trying to find their style, it would be to just gravitate to what they what they enjoy and screw what everybody else thinks. I've never thought about what other people think. I think I must have a bit missing in my brain. Um, like I know exactly what I want to wear. And the fact that somebody else might not like it, I can't tell you how irrelevant that is to me. Um of course, somebody else wouldn't like it. Why, why is that, <laughs> you know, why is that even a consideration? Right. You know, like, so, um, and I worship people who are bold and crazy. And I've been around, I was lucky to be around some of the greatest, you know, style extroverts like Lee Bowery. You know, I'm hung out with many times Lady Bunny, all these people who were at the Pyramid Club in the 80s. Um, taboo and happy face mm -hmm. and they would just talk about knew how to be themselves and they were they were courageous and they weren't self-critical in a in that way because you know they weren't being barraged with with social media maybe right. though you know this new meticulousness does also create a sort of critical sense about things just mm -hmm. because it is a more formalized way of approaching drag but i think the key is, that's why probably you're right, people really then feel an enormous sense of drenching relief when they go see Busted or Dina Martini mm -hmm. and there's somebody who's not being meticulous. It mm -hmm. must be kind of like this wonderful enema <laughs> where you can, you can just like... It's a release. Yes, it's a release. <laughs> oh, And it, it's funny because you, you, um, you mentioned Lady Bunny, who to me is... Basically, what what everything drag should be in a way. It's 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 political. It's sparkly. It's beautiful. It's ugly. It it is this um, just amazing ball of of <clears throat> happiness of happiness. Yeah. But 
it has something to say. And I feel like, unfortunately, there that that's a little hard to come by nowadays because of this meticulousness that you that that you know that you talk about and that you know even amongst Robert and I you know we sometimes see these photos that are posted on Instagram where we go and see drag in person and there are moments where you, where you look at these queens and it's the artifice is just so beautifully done that it's hard to look past that you know but with somebody like Lady Bunny the the artifice is not is is not the the end goal it's it's a way of delivering everything else that she wants to give you you know be it a dirty joke that is just funny or you know scathing political commentary all while wearing you know a five foot high wig of course (laughs) um do you feel um that that this meticulousness has in many ways um or or in any way has kind of um I, I I would say like derailed the the kind of underground nature of drag just a little bit um I not really I mean it seems to coexist with all the other genres of drag mm-hmm. I mean there's there's uh all these genres have their own footing and people differentiate themselves from other people um and you know bunny is as you say a tour de force i mean absolutely she's so multifaceted and great but not everybody's multifaceted you know like um i couldn't do what she does um and she has um political engagement probably a lot more than i do you know like so it wouldn't do for everybody to start phoning in these engagements that they essentially don't have Mm -hmm. you know so it should be about self-expression and what we get with bunny is this magnificent unfurling of a truly multifaceted person who's bawdy smart fabulous terrifying you know she's everything (laughs) all at once and she also is a brilliant satirist because when i've seen her she satirizes um you know uh some of the excesses in in the world in a brilliant way with great panache and that's a hugely important role i think and i think bianca del rio does that too we need we Mm -hmm. need people who also debunk us and make fun of us and show us when we're you know getting a bit too um wound up about things and that's an important role for drag like diffusing tension and satirizing um cliches and stuff absolutely right these queens that are basically pointing out the the emperor isn't wearing any clothes Mm -hmm. and that's (laughs) that's what they both do and it's brilliant the way they do it yeah uh, one of the things that I that I learned from reading the book is that there was uh, it, it seemed like drag kings were the majority of like they were the, the leaders of queer entertainment at the turn of the 20th century. And um, I, I found it interesting that they're somewhat scarce in nightlife today. Um, I was just wondering what you think that why that is. Well, I think the drag queens at the turn of the century, Hetty King, um, those the others that are mentioned in my book, there was a whole bunch of them, and they were wealthy and successful, and they performed in New York, they performed in London, they were headlining people who were, you know, revered. Um, there were men um, wearing drag at the same time, like Julian Eltinge, but the phenomenon right. of these drag kings, you're absolutely right, was something we don't necessarily have today, and I think... My guess would be, you know, coming out of Victorian England um, and the 19th century, which is incredibly patriarchal, um, like there was this uh, daring. It was still illegal, I think, for women to wear men's clothes in public. So it was daring, but it was also a much needed bit of therapeutic satire to make fun of those very pompous Victorian archetypes of masculinity, you know, that were often toxic. And, uh, that's what these women did so wonderfully, like, um, winking at the female members of the audience and, and being very full of themselves and strutting up and down and singing, I'm Burlington Bertie. I rise at 1030, you know, <laughs> and doing these hilarious musical acts and people loved it. Women loved it because I think they were, you know, the allure of androgyny. People have always found androgynous people very attractive. The allure of androgyny and men liked it, I think, because it was like 
incredibly cheeky, you know, at that point in history to take archetypal masculinity and start deconstructing it in that way with spats and a top hat and a cane and wing collars and waistcoats. And it was um, clearly served multiple functions because it must have done for it to be so unbelievably popular. And then they... um, they sort of, uh, you're right, we don't really have that today. And I think, you know, that's probably due to the fact that uh, women have made so many substantial gains in equality. You know, mm-hmm. the, you know, especially like in England, the five most powerful people are women, the queen, the head of the police force, the pri- prime minister, it's, not a, it's a man now. But, you know, like, so in England, it would, they wouldn't, they would have to sat- satirize something else. You know, mm-hmm. now what you get is, drag drag kings doing political satire like melissa mccarthy doing sean spicer you know um meryl streep dragging up as trump um debunking and satirizing political figures has has become a new venue for drag kings Mm -hmm. right well and and i mean in in that same vein you actually end the book with a paragraph like the very last paragraph of the book is i think in many ways dedicated to kind of this this new dawn of the age of the drag king where because of the how can i put the the diversification of the of the drag landscape because now we see um you know much more representation of of trans queens of um you know cis women who are drag queens of essentially every type of gender identity uh, Sorry, never. Uh, everybody who identifies as who they are is essentially doing drag now. But your last paragraph points out that the you know that 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 drag kings are essentially kind of coming up again and really staking their claim. Do you feel that we're poised to see um, this kind of flood of drag queens, the way uh, drag kings? Sorry, the way that we have drag queens in the past few years. Um, I, I feel it definitely. And I feel that drag kings, there's now a lot of ways to be a drag king. You know, what you see now are, um, in the nineties, you know, the big vogue among drag kings was sort of doing a parody of working class, brute kind of masculinity, grease monkeys, you know, mechanics, um, uh, it was almost their version of the village people, cowboys. Um, that was a very sort of big part of being a drag king. And then what you see now also, in addition to the political stuff, you see a kind of metrosexual drag king. There's a drag king in London called Adam All, and um, he... I guess, I think, I don't know what his pronoun is, but I'm guessing he dresses in a sort of foppish, stylish, metrosexual way with, you know, pastel colors. It's not, it's not toxic masculinity. It's kind of, it's Truman Capote, it's Hamish Bowles, it's sort of, um, a more foppish, um, brand of masculinity that, um, you know, is actually, appealing at this particular moment mm-hmm. in the culture because you know drag is very much a mirror of the culture so um you're getting these these wonderful metrosexual drag kings who are um yeah doing the sort of dandy look right absolutely um you've also mentioned you've you've made reference to a couple of the queens who've been on RuPaul's drag race and um we were wondering what the what you think the uh how the show has affected the art form of drag itself and its evolution. Well, RuPaul's impact on the culture is really inestimable. You could never really, you could write 10 books about it. Right. Um, You know, RuPaul's impact on the culture is just, it's unbelievable. And uh, in so many different ways, and it's sort of, had this enormous impact on drag, even in the time, the three years, during the three years that I was writing, um, this book, the velocity of change in this arena, much of it propelled by RuPaul, where you, at the beginning of those three years, there were no trans people on RuPaul's drag race. And then, you know, then you have Peppermint and you have Monica Beverly Hills. What was her name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, this rapid change, rapid, rapid change, and um, the growth of gender-neutral 
in music, in culture, in art, is like um, was a rapid thing during that period. When I started this book, there was like a firewall between trans and drag, you know, and and that just broke down really quickly. And now you have artists like Victoria Sin. Um, cisgendered female pronoun they who I has a drag queen identity um you know there, there's um I have a quote from Casey Spooner in my book who says the the incredible thing now is that there are no rules there are no walls it's like a fabulous garden you you can create and craft your identity um and 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 it's like a wonderful garden without so many hard and fast divisions and i think I was, that's what i was trying to capture at the end that um it's uh an incredible period of of no rules exploration today's episode is brought to you by quip an innovative oral care brand that makes it easier than ever to maintain a healthy brushing routine the simple secret to great oral health is good technique consistent brushing and regular upkeep do away with the myth that more power and features means a better clean by trying out their beautifully designed electric toothbrushes. They also take the guesswork out of replacing your toothbrush by delivering a new head and fresh batteries to you every three months. Shipping is free and you can cancel at any time. We use Quip and it's made us smile more because our teeth are actually clean. Quip is offering you, our listeners, $10 off your first refill by signing up at tryquip.com slash kiki. Again, that's tryquip.com slash kiki. Quip, oral care designed for a modern lifestyle. How do you feel the British public is going to react to the uh, the upcoming uh, Drag Race UK? I think the British public is foaming at the mouth to get that show because <laughs> keep in mind... Um, British people are steeped in drag. Anyway, you know about the pantomime tradition mm -hmm. in England. Yes. Like every every Christmas and every every holiday in every small town around England and every big town, there's a pantomime production. And these are hard to explain, but it's such a huge part of English culture. And you always get um, drag is just a huge part of what propels it. Um, so British people are very, very well versed in drag and they love the glamour of drag. The interesting thing to me is that drag now on a global level, the sort of language of drag and the approach of drag is essentially American drag and it's essentially American black drag. The language of right. drag is, mm -hmm. you know, we must all bow down before the black drag queen because she is the source of everything of of fierceness, confidence, the language, the style, the approach. You know, there was a, a period in British drag when British drag had its own kind of barroom identity with people like Lily Savage, you know, like the, the sort of lovable tart with the blonde wig. And, and, uh, now that's been sort of overtaken and, and black drag is, is the global language of drag. You know, you know, shade, throwing shade, mm -hmm. mopping, twerking, snapping, um, serving realness, all of that, that language and that approach and that feeling and that mood and that tone, which has come from the margins of society. You know, what's back in the day? What was more marginalized than a black drag queen? Mm -hmm. And that's where this ferocious creativity, this magnificent energy that has sort of now found its way into everything in the culture and you see it everywhere i i tried to sort of get that point across in my black drag chapter like this is the primordial source of drag which is now being used on a global level mm -hmm. and you see it very much in england so they in england you hear like posh girls talk about throw shade and you know who had no <laughs> exposure to um to black drag queens in person but they've now they've seen rupaul's drag race and they're fully um you know they love shangela they love um you know uh, La latrice royale yes. they love kennedy davenport i mean we could go on for hours there's mm -hmm. so many incredible characters on that show that have been revealed and i think some of the most memorable touching ones for me some of my ones that i've been particularly interested in following are people like vixen Absolutely. The vixen who struggle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up working class after the war. I'm not comparing my struggle to hers, but I understand 
And I was around many kids who, who struggled to, with that saboteur on their shoulder. When RuPaul talks about the sab, the inner saboteur. And, you know, I remember so many kids I grew up with struggling with that, that saboteur. So those journeys that RuPaul has brought to the screen are universal. Those are universal stories that, um, you, you can bear witness to in the most fascinating way that is very, very profound. So, um, you know, it's deep, it's superficial, and, but it's ultimately very profound. Right. Well, speaking of, um, of that, <laughs> we were wondering, so one of your, one of the many hats you wear is you're a judge on making it. And uh, we were wondering how your love of drag has uh, has helped with judging the like the craftiness on that show. Well, when I'm on making it, it's a fabulous show, by the way, with yes. Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman. Mm -hmm. It's great. And Dana Isom Johnson from Etsy is my co-judge. Um, so we actually um, we think about or Dana and I, Dana and I think about drag race all the time because, um, you know, the way Rue approaches the judging process is so interesting and nuanced. And the way he delivers his commentary, um, is, it's really a masterclass in how to be on TV. And I actually think about it a lot. Um, and, uh, to be supportive, but also looking for things that will help people move forward. That's something that's done very well on Drag Race, like identifying shortcomings which are fixable and which then you can say, wow, you really heard my critique about that and you moved forward on it and blah, blah, blah. So right. um, Drag Race is a masterclass in, in TV. It never feels... It never feels fake. It never feels like the drama's manufactured. It's, um, it's spot on. And so, yeah, no, I'm, when I'm on that set, I think about it a lot. And it's hard not to say things like sachet away and stuff like that. <laughs> but, um, but Dana and I have a good laugh. Uh, anyway, yes, making mm -hmm. it. I'm so lucky to get, to have gotten that show. My husband auditioned for it too, you know, and he didn't get the part. Isn't that oh hilarious? Wow. That's crazy. It was very Bat and Joan when that happened. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's it's fascinating mm -hmm. what uh, what the contestants on that show can do. The 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 um, I, I I'm remembering a, like a room that had swings in it. I like I'm probably butchering what whatever it was, but um, yeah, it, it was. We were we were fascinated by yeah. some of the things that they were able to put well, together, and, and we were told by making it by a drag queen that we were interviewing actually from Chicago, Alexis Bevels, who said, "If you like craftiness, you have to watch Making It," and that's right. how we started making it. So it just it kind of comes full circle, full circle. Yeah. You know, it's it's well, all the, it's all intertwined. <laughs> this. There's so many parallels because very often you're making something out of nothing, something mm -hmm. out of trash, taking recognizable things and doing something clever and recontextualizing them um, in a humorous way. You know, crafts um, are a bit like drag in that there's no real fails. You know, the, the purpose of crafting is you're supposed to enjoy it. It's supposed to be self-expression. You're not supposed to be trying to win a Nobel Prize for crafting. It's supposed to be fun <laughs> and, and good for your soul. And I right. feel like drag, as much as there is always a winner at the end of it, um, you know, doing drag is a feel-good thing. And if, you know, if you go to a drag show and it's pretty third rate and nothing much great is happening, people will still cheer. Mm -hmm. They'll still, right. you know, it's a supportive environment and the crafting, the making world, the crafting world is very similar. The people are basically very good natured. It's not a takedown world. And I still think of drag that way. You know, it's a world where it's like, hey, girl, have a go. Like, give it a whirl, honey. You never know. Why not? Right. You know, there's that kind of improvisational thing, which I think is an important spirit um, to as drag the standards of meticulousness that you talked about earlier as those become more profound and the money comes into drag it's it's going to be important to keep that that sense of fun hey why not give it a whirl the amateurishness too cuz um you know that's Andy Warhol also said mm -hmm. he preferred amateurs to professionals because they could never be phony Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think 
there's always that tinge of amateurishness that any drag queen should keep just just even a, a tiny percentage because that's the bit that makes people feel they can touch you and reach you and makes you human and squishy mm-hmm. right <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um so going back to your book um it's not only contributing to the study of drag, but it's also contributing to a good cause. Um, 100% of your author proceeds will go to the Alley Forney Center, um, which is a, a, a nonprofit institution here in New York. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the Alley Forney Center does and why you chose uh, them to be the beneficiary of, of the author proceeds? Well, I tried to think about the parts of the gay world, the trans world, LGBTQ, which where people were having a really rough time. And, um, you know, obviously people in countries where there's terrible discrimination around the world, gays, gay and trans are still, there's, you know, the death penalty in certain countries. So I thought about that, but then I thought about closer to home. Um, and the Ali Forney Center helps at-risk youth, LGBTQ, who are essentially homeless, and they've been operating for years up in Harlem. It's a great charity. It's really well run. And I thought, yeah, that's my focus because, um, you know, in my lifetime, gay rights, LGBTQ rights have gone undergone such a massive transformation. You know, when I got my green card, you couldn't get a green card if you were gay. You had to lie about it on the form and oh blah, blah, blah. You know, like, so there's that now is like unimaginable. And at mm-hmm. the time, we just sort of accepted it. Oh, yeah, no, you have to pretend to be straight and don't have like any leather chaps in your suitcase or <laughs> anything like that or a feather boa. Um, it was just, you know, weirdly accepted in the seventies, but now it seems like just outrageous discrimination. But thinking about all the progress that's been made, I thought there's still, those are the people in our community who are being, um, mistreated and deserve help from those of us who have a, more of a foothold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're a great organization and, um, yeah, they're, they're just, they're didn't, uh, was it Ali Forney that um, B. Arthur left a like she yes. left a building to? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so more. Um, oh, I didn't know that. That's yes. incredible. Yes, if I'm not mistaken, I yes, I think that's true. I think it was. <laughs> that Ali makes Forney. me want to run out and buy a maxi vest. <laughs> <laughs> I think it actually has her name on it somewhere in the, or a hall or something in the building. But yeah, that was one of the um, the places that she left uh, money to in her oh, in her will. Great. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for for doing this with us, Simon. We were we were so excited to read this book, and even more excited to talk to you about it. So uh, it, this was a great opportunity. Well, thank you for your enthusiasm about it, because you know it's only just come out, and uh, you know I'm keep talking about how people shouldn't worry about what other people think, but I'm <laughs> getting your feedback. Your positive <laughs> feedback was. Um, warming the cockles of my black mm. old heart yeah. so thank you <laughs> and it it definitely is a book that is beautiful to look at it's beautifully bound and the amount of archival photos and 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 other materials in it is just astounding but it is also an amazing read so it it must be read well i'm very well. lucky because i've i'm very lucky because i have one of my oldest friends is Albert Sanchez of Sanchez Zalba, mm-hmm. and they photograph all the new queens. And they've been working uh. with RuPaul for years. Albert photographed Ru, um, you know, during the uh, the Mac with the Viva Glam campaign. Mm-hmm. Right. So they've worked together for years, and Albert did the cover shot of Violet Chachki. So, um, and then there's other friends of mine too featured in the book, like Henny Garfunkel. So David Yartu. Um, so a lot of these friends of mine who are, who've documented the drag scene over the years are very lucky to have access to their pictures, especially Sanchez Zalba. You should follow them on Instagram. Oh, we do. Oh my God. They're amazing. Sensational. Yeah, they do amazing work. Um, so before we go, would you be so kind as to tell our listeners where they can follow you on social media? Um, well, I am on Instagram, Simon Doonan, and I think that's about it. I'm, I think because <laughs> writing, <laughs> writing books takes so much time. I'm a little bit neglectful of social media, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, 
I believe there's yes, Facebook too. I think yes. Um, <laughs> well, if we can find it, listen, we will link to it. Remember, I was born the year before the coronation of Elizabeth II. It's a miracle I even have a smartphone and can talk on this <laughs> thingy. The year before the coronation, darling. Think about that. Is there? Are you working on another book at the moment? Um, yes, I am. I'm working on a self-help book called Ooh. How to Be Yourself. And um, what I'm learning is that I'm not terribly helpful um, during this book. But I think it's going to be, ultimately, it'll be very inspiring, which I think is, is an indirect way of being helpful. Yes. Well, I'm excited to read it. And I'm even more excited to uh, apply your inspiring words to the way I express myself through my clothing. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> when in doubt, wear it. Absolutely. Yeah, and it buy a blue tomorrow. stripper wig. Yes. <laughs> and a leopard jumpsuit. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Simon, uh, for taking time to speak to us. We truly appreciate it. You guys are fabulous, and I'm very flattered to be included on your podcast. Thank you. A huge kiss. Wasn't that interview amazing? Wasn't it amazing? I Just had like amazing. so much fun talking to Simon. It was kind of one of the most nerve-wracking interviews we've had to prepare for. Oh. But absolutely. also one of the most fascinating and easy. Just it was so easy to talk to him and and just kind of draw up more stories than what, you know, are in this amazing book. Yes. Um which we actually did read cover to cover. Absolutely. As we said in the interview. Um I I'm I'm just I'm excited to see how this book goes. Um, or sorry, how this book does, because I think that nothing else like it exists. Right. You know, and it's not just like your, you know, like, uh, like fangirl compendium. It's a, a very academic approach to the history of drag as and we talked thorough. about. Thorough. Yeah. Very thorough. Mm-hmm. But you know that already because yeah. we talked about it in the interview. Exactly. Um, why don't you tell everyone where they can buy this book? So, of course, you can buy it where all fine books are sold, but where you're going to buy it from is a grizzlykiki.com slash drag. Yes. We would like for you to buy it at grizzlykiki.com slash drag. I don't want to be so aggressive with our wonderful I was just trying, I just, I wanted, I wanted, you know, like, I just, I wanted to put that emphasis there. Emphasis on the mm-hmm. wrong syllable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So once again, <laughs> the, the link is grizzlykiki.com slash drag. And, um, and that'll take you to, um, to Amazon to purchase the book. Uh, again, an amazing book, Dr- like drag through the ages, yep. like the, the ages, like going way, 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 way back. Yeah. And, uh, just, incredibly fascinating and um and everyone should read it um especially if you're a drag fan you need to know the history of this yeah and um yeah i'm i'm so excited to um i'm so excited to hear what the listeners think of the book because there is there was so much in the book that i didn't even know that i was fascinated by so definitely send us your thoughts and um and we'll be back next week and we'll do all kinds of we we watched a lot of movies yeah. and um we got a we got a lot of stuff to talk about we also we also got a bunch of emails that we have mm-hmm. to respond to and so we're going to respond to them on the show um Perfect. so we will we'll do that next week well that brings us to the end of another episode yes uh we're grizzly kiki on everything that means facebook twitter and instagram uh, be sure to follow us there. And don't forget to follow our guest, Simon Doonan, on all social media platforms. Um, and you can send your questions to grizzlykiki at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read yours on the air. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. So until next time. Bye. bye.